0: All right, good morning, good morning. All right. Like Wade said, my name's Anthony, and uh, along with my wife, we do facilitate an MC. And this Sunday, we are gonna be scattering to Prescott. Um, so even if you're not a part of an MC and you just wanna get out of the heat, come join us. Uh, we're gonna have lunch together up at a lake up in Prescott. Um, so it's supposed to be 1.18 on Tuesday, so if I get a text from you on Wednesday... I know you want to get out of the heat, and we're good. You can come along. Um, but I get the privilege this morning to, to teach again from Psalms as we continue to go through the Psalms for this last week, and we're going to read together Psalm 127, so would you stand with me and as we read God's word together? Psalm 127, song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the lord a fruit of the womb a fruit of the womb a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate let's pray jesus thank you for your word Um, that is so readily available to us, Jesus, that speaks to who you are and what you have done and how we should now live and now who we are. God, I pray that your spirit uh, would speak in and through me this morning, that your word would not return void, and that you would be glorified, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So just a little bit of history and context for this psalm. It's in the subset of the psalms called the Songs of Ascent. So there are 15 psalms from about 120 to about 132, I think. That would be 12. I'm a math teacher. 135. That are called the Songs of Ascent. And these are songs that the Jews would sing on, uh, three times a year when God called them to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem. In Exodus, we read that God commands his people, the men of Israel, to go back to Jerusalem to celebrate three different festivals. And these psalms, these songs, were meant as songs of remembrance, songs of praise that on their journey to and from Jerusalem, they would sing. And if you read these songs of ascent, all of them start out pointing to God. Remembering what God has done, remembering what he is doing, and remembering what he will do, what he has promised. And so as they journey, as they go along, they would sing these songs. Um, Also, a little bit of history. It says, in uh, a lot of versions say, of Solomon, but it could mean, of Solomon could mean to Solomon as well. So some scholars believe that this was written by David to his son Solomon... And some believe that it was written by Solomon himself. So there's... And, and the scholars on each side of those are pretty legit dudes. So I'm not even going to pretend to take a side. But I tend to believe... If, again, we're going to go through Ecclesiastes. And the beginning of this talks a lot about laboring in vain. And if you've ever read Ecclesiastes, who's written by Solomon, there's a lot of laboring in vain in those books. And we're going to go through it. So I tend to believe it's of Solomon. But it could be that... That laboring in vain could have been a seed planted by his father, David. And as Solomon grows to be king, he's like, man, my dad knew what he was talking about. But these psalms, these songs of ascent, they were specifically for the Jews then. But they're still a song for us today to be a reminder to us that God needs to be at the heart of all that we do. And when he's at the heart of all that we do, we will have a healthy balance between all the roles and responsibilities he has given us. And then lastly, we'll see that it is God who establishes the heritage of his people. So first we see that, that God should be at the heart of all that we do. Whether it's literally constructing a house or metaphorically building a home, building a family. Whether it's literally watching over or protecting a city or metaphorically going to work every day. God has to be at the heart of all that we do. The first three words in verse 1 are unless the Lord. Meaning what is about to follow these is dependent on the Lord. Unless the Lord builds the house those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The idea here is the builder can build, the watchman can watch, the teacher can teach, the the IT person can develop, the seller can sell, the mother and father can parent, but unless the Lord is at the heart of those things, it all will be in vain. Meaning we must trust God with all of our roles and responsibilities that he has entrusted to us. We must look to him for wisdom and direction and guidance as we faithfully pursue and join him in the mission and the work and the responsibilities that he's given us. This dependence and trust in God does not excuse me from laboring. We can't just sit back and say, unless the Lord does it, I'm not going to do anything. Unless the Lord brings me that job, I'm just going to sit here and play Xbox. That's my son, folks. I still have responsibility. I still get the opportunity and the joy to join him in the work that he has blessed me with. I still have to do my job. I still have to lead my family. I still have to do the things that God has entrusted me with. It's important as followers of God to believe that my family and my work are blessings from him. It's his work that I get to partake in and which I'm faithfully called to steward and care for and invest in. When God is at the heart of our work and our home men we will love our wives in a sacrificial way that points the world to how Jesus how God loves his bride women who will faithfully love their husbands in a way that brings honor to him and to God we'll love our kids in a way that points them to a loving God who cares deeply for their hearts and for the hearts of others and not in a way where they might mistake God for a controlling, manipulative tyrant. As employees, we'll love our coworkers, customers, bosses, in a way where they want to know, what are, what's your motivation? Why do you work so hard with such joy? Now, as believers, we should be hard workers. We've been called to hard work who worketh unto the Lord. But in verse two, it's a warning for us to keep a healthy balance between work and rest. Verse two says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So in verse one, he spoke of vanity. And here again, we see him speak of something else that is vain. We see that working so hard, Getting up early, going to bed late, and anxiously toiling away is also vanity. Our culture today today is one of extremes, where on one hand we have a workaholic whose life and identity revolve around their job, revolve around their work, often at the expense of their family, the expense of relationships at the expense of other responsibilities and roles that God has entrusted to them. And then on the other hand, we have the lazy, the slacker, whose life and identity revolve around not wanting to do anything. Also at the expense of family and relationships and other roles and responsibilities God has called us to and entrusted us with. But here in the second verse... It seems to be addressing the workaholic, the one who rises early, goes to bed late, anxiously toiling away at the expense of relationships. In the second chapter of her book, Kingdom Calling, Amy Sherman talks about the Sadakim, which is the Hebrew word for the righteous. She writes that the sadakim are Christ followers who understand that they are blessed to be a blessing. That the righteous use their skills, their time, and their talents and gifts to be a foretaste of the coming kingdom of God. Their fundamental orientation in life is not towards self-fulfillment, but towards God's glory. Their Godward orientation helps them remember to be faithful to all of the various callings he has placed on their lives in addition to their work, such as family relationships, parenting responsibilities, service roles within the church and duties to community and their city. What Amy Sherman and what this verse are reminding us is that when our lives are orientated around glorifying God, in all of life, when he is at the heart of all that we do and all of our responsibilities, there'll be a healthy balance between our roles and responsibilities, between work and rest. But when our lives are orientated around self-fulfillment, when our lives revolve around us and what we want and what we think we need, we will always be eating the bread of anxious toil Because we begin to orient our lives around false and empty idols that will never fully satisfy our souls. Work in its proper place should be seen as worship, not as something to be worshipped. So some questions to ask to see if we are living as the sadakim, the righteous, or if we're living for self-fulfillment. Where am I finding my identity? What is my life revolving around? Now, for us, if we ask ourselves this, we might be blind to it, right? We might not readily recognize what I'm finding my identity in. So, you might want to ask if you're married, you might want to ask a spouse. They'll know. You might want to ask a close friend. They'll know. Or if you have kids that are old enough, ask your kids. They'll know. And they haven't been blessed with the gift of a filter yet. (laughs) Do I believe my work and my home will fall apart unless I hold it together? Do I believe that my kids will fall apart unless I'm a perfect Christian parent? Or for those whose kids may already be grown, do I believe that it is because of me and my parenting that my kids are following the Lord? Or do I believe that it's my fault that my kids are not following the Lord because I was not a perfect Christian parent? Do I overemphasize my importance at work? I'm the man, I'm the woman. If I wasn't here, this place would fall apart. Are my work and relationships characterized by anxiousness and frustration because I'm living out of fear of failure? The last part of this verse says that God gives to his beloved sleep. God created us in a way where our bodies have to sleep. If we go too long without sleep, we die. Our bodies, our minds, our souls need sleep. They need rest. We need to stop, shut down, disconnect, and rest. We see in Scripture that while God created and ordained work for Adam in the garden... He also created an ordained rest. We all know that on the seventh day, God himself rested. And when he had finished his work creating the heavens and earth and everything in them, he took a step back to enjoy it. It's good. God then commands of it, it of his people to remember the Sabbath and keep it Holy. Rest or Sabbath is anything that renews or restores our strength or our soul. There's a difference between rest and play. A buddy of mine said there's a difference between a trip and a vacation. He's like, when I go visit my family, it's a trip, not a vacation. (laughs) When I go visit my family, I need a vacation from that trip. My family's here. I do not feel like that when I go visit you. I did not make that person up, so it did, it wouldn't seem like me <laughs> hanging out with you all is rest. David knew this. Psalm sixty-two says, "Truly, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress, and I will never be shaken." David knew that for his soul to find rest, it had to be in God and God alone. The best way to find restorative rest is to connect with God. Getting alone with him in a place where we have the space to hear from him. Oftentimes, we have to be intentional to create this space, right? In our world of technology, in our world of social media, in our world where we are constantly being bombarded by everything else that's going on in the world, where we're being forced to choose sides politically, theologically, ideologically, where do you land? We're constantly being bombarded with choices and media and pain and hurt we have to be intentional to create space for ourselves in order to hear God amongst the noise. One of the things for me is I love getting up north and just spending some time in the woods alone with God and just saying, God, speak to me. Spending some time just worshiping and just listening. It's quiet up there. But I don't get to, the reality is I don't get to do that very often. Right? I can't leave my family <laughs> every two or three days to go up north to disconnect like that. When God gives us those times, man, it is sweet for our soul. But the reality is we have to be intentional to create that space in our everyday lives. Amongst the noise. Amongst the chaos. Whether it's getting up early. Telling your spouse, hey, I need, I need 15, 20 minutes by myself. Can you cover the kids for a little bit? Disconnecting, shutting your phone off, turning off all your notifications, and just sitting and listening. This rest, this intentional space admits that I need God, that it is his gift, his doing, that provides me that rest. I need him for my work, my daily activities. It's admitting I cannot do this life in my own strength, that he has to be at the heart of all that I do. Today we have to intentionally set time aside each day. And a whole day, once a week, keeping it holy, where we shut down and commune with God and others. The third thing that the Psalm 127 reminds us on this pilgrimage to grow in the knowledge of God to follow Jesus is that children are a heritage and a blessing from God. We we read in verses 3 through 5, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb. A reward, like arrows in the hands of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, I want to pause a moment, and I, and I want to pause because this is something dear to my heart, and it's uh, it's something that's very real in, in our circle of friends and in our, in our world right now. Is that the reality of the? is the reality of these verses might bring up some some pain, some hurt, some anger, some frustration as we begin to see the gift and the blessing of children. The reality for many of us, or those listening on the podcast, or the reality of a lot of people we know is that they've experienced a miscarriage. They've experienced maybe a stillbirth. Or maybe they've experienced trying for so long for many years to try and have kids and they can't. Or they've gotten married later in life and now they're no longer able to have kids in their own. So these verses might bring up some painful feelings for some of us. We live in a fallen world where things are broken and not as they should be, not as they were intended to be when God created man and woman. Now this is not an excuse for God but the reality of our broken world. Our God grieves with you and wants to sit with you in these hard, dark places. You're not alone in your pain Press into those dark places and let God meet you there. He loves you and your tragedy did not happen for any lack of faith on your part. Now, children are a blessing. They are a gift from God. When they're young, when they're crazy, sometimes you want to debate that. You're like, are they really? (laughs) But during this time when this was written, and for much of history, children were a blessing and a reward in different kinds of ways than they are today. First, people had no institutionalized pension plans or health insurance. Children were their parents' social security. As the parents became older, their sons provided for them and took care of them. Now, most of the translations in verse 3, it says children, but the literal translation is sons. So the text speaks of sons specifically because typically daughters would marry and go live with their husbands' families. So in effect, sons were a couple's retirement plan. And this bound the generations closely together. Also for much of history, especially pre-industrialized worlds, many kids meant more help on the family farm or in the family business. Couldn't keep the farm going if I only had one son. I got 12, we're good to go. (laughs) But most families during this time stuck together on their land. Their land, their farms, their businesses had been passed down from generation to generation. It was a family, generational business, generational farm, generational land. So, this idea of building a house and watching a city toiling together was a very family affair, family endeavor. They lived together, they worked together, they ate together, and most did for their entire lives. Sons would be a heritage and then that they would carry on the family name and maintain the family land and keep the family business going for generations. Also, kids, specifically sons back then, as he mentions in verse 4 and 5, were also a sort of security for the family. The more sons you had, the more protection you had. If you, had a business in this, if you had a business in the city gate, and some dude walks up to you making fun of your tunic, and all of a sudden your 12 sons roll around on their camels, and they're like, hey, pops, what's up? Were you good? <laughs> that enemy's like, oh, wait, all right. Nice tunic you got. Or if another dude, if the week before some guy shorted you 12 denarii, 12 shekels, When he bought your sheep, and now he's an enemy at the gate. You grab your twelve sons and be like, Hey sons, there's Alamakiah, he shorted me twelve shekels last week. Let's go see if we can get him back. The more sons you had, the more protection and safety and security you had. Today kids are a blessing and a reward for different reasons. In our world, in our culture, especially in America, we don't expect our sons and their families to stay in our land, taking care of us for the rest of their lives. Some parents are like, nope, 18, he gone. <laughs> Some of us are like, well, they might be able to stay till they're 20, but they're paying, for, they're paying rent. They're paying half the utilities for their own phone and their own insurance, right? But most of the time, we don't expect our kids to live in our house and work our family business. We want them to go and do what God has called them to do. Now, eventually, we probably want them to come back and take care of us, right? We don't want them to leave us, and that's part of honoring your father and mother. Kids also help in the sanctification process. Just as getting married helps us recognize where we fall short in the glory of God. Then you have kids. Right? Have you heard it said, like, man, I didn't know how selfish I was till I got married. Then I thought I had it good, and then I had kids. And then I really realized how selfish <laughs> and self-centered I am. God has a way to using kids to shine lights in dark places of our heart. Like, man, I didn't know I could get that angry so fast. Man, I didn't know, I didn't know that bothered me. God has a way of using kids in the sanctification process. If you were a parent who's very selfish and self-centered and you have kids, you learn how to be more giving and sacrificial. If you're a parent going into it who didn't know how to pray or who didn't know how to really go before the Father, when you have kids, man, they teach you how to go before God and the Father for the sake of other people. And today... Children are a blessing because they teach us how to do discipleship. In Matthew 28, Jesus gives us the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey all that he has commanded us. With the promise that he'll never leave us or forsake us. We get to do that with our kids. With our own kids and our family with our kids in MC if you're a part of missional community, with our kids here on Sunday mornings, children are a great way to learn how to do discipleship because they often come with a heart that wants to know more, that asks questions, awkward questions, hard questions, that live in the mess of life. You should look at my Vinny man. My kids live in the messiness of life. It overflows into my minivan. They teach us how to do this thing called discipleship. But the truth here is that the heritage of God, the heritage that Psalm 127 speaks about, the heritage of God is Jesus. When this psalm speaks about children being a heritage from the Lord, if this psalm was written by David, he would be writing this in the light of the promise that God had given him through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel. But even if this, even if this psalm was written by Solomon, he surely would have known the promise that God gave his father, David. In 2 Samuel, Nathan... God tells Nathan to tell David, hey, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And in 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So we see in the first couple verses that God is at work. He is at the heart of all that we do. He is at work in this world, and he has invited us to participate in that work. He watches over the city, He builds the house, he gives rest, he creates heritage, he creates life, and he even invites us into that work, into that mission. God brings us into his heritage by entering into ours. God sends his son, Jesus, who was born a baby boy, vulnerable, and had to be cared for by his mother and father. He lives a perfect life. He's crucified on a cross, and on the third day, he rises again to new life. Through Jesus, we have been adopted into God's heritage. Jesus was from the line of David and Solomon. He was the heritage of that kingdom, he sits on the throne forever. And the king who sits on the throne forever, whose kingdom is being established, whose kingdom come, we have the opportunity to be adopted into that lineage, into that heritage. We are called sons and daughters of the king Who sits on the throne forever. And we've been invited to participate with him on mission to go to all nations and establish a heritage of disciples, a heritage of children of faith for his kingdom and his glory. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for your heritage, Jesus, that you pass down unto your bride, unto your church, unto your people, Jesus. That we now have the opportunity to partake, to join you on mission. We now have the opportunity. To sit and rest and enjoy your family, your kingdom. God, may we not keep this to ourselves. May we not hoard this heritage, Jesus, but go out and spread this good news to those who need it. To invite others into this heritage, so that they might know you and the joy of your salvation. It's in your name we pray, amen.